Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. In June, June 25th, 1940, I figured out this was my father's 13th birthday. But anyway, it was a terrible day for France because it was the day that the Nazis invaded and conquered France and set up their Vichy government in France. Now, the Vichy government was the pseudo-government that was all um, French men and women who were supposedly sympathetic to Germany and to the aims of the Nazis. And they agreed to cooperate fully with the Nazis. Now, we've all heard of the Gestapo, right? I like to say Gestapo. Um, because that's how I heard it once on um, Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> and most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, well, too bad. But the, the Gestapo was not omnipresent nor omniscient. You know, we, we see these movies, and they look like they know everything, and they have this web. But the Gestapo literally relied on the cooperation of citizens. They rewarded citizens that snitched on other citizens. So they sought to recruit 30,000 French who would snitch on their neighbors. Guess what? They tripled that amount. There were over 100,000 French that were willing to rat out their neighbors. In fact, the Germans were surprised because they did not even find that much cooperation in Germany. The French were more than ready. Uh, if they got angry at a neighbor, the threat was, I'm going to go tell the Germans. And they held it over each other. These French didn't even realize how bad things were until the food resources begin to be dried up and given to the Nazi soldiers, until they begin to see their neighbors rounded up and sent to concentration camps, or they saw a group of young students who were demonstrating against the Nazi occupation shot down in the streets and murdered their sons and their daughters. And it was about this time that the French resistance began to develop. It had to be covert. It had to be underground. But they were resisting the Nazi occupation. These people were in key places, sometimes even in the Vichy French government itself. And they were horrified by the atrocities they witnessed by the Nazis. The resistance struggled at first because the parties involved were so prejudiced against each other and splintered. However, once the communists learned to work with the Protestants, who learned to work with the Catholics, who learned to work with the intellectuals, who learned to work with the farmers, who learned to work with the British, who learned to work with the Americans, the underground war against the Nazi occupation began to gain ground and momentum. One of the major players in the French resistance was a woman named Josephine Baker. Does anyone know who Josephine Baker was? She was a famous jazz singer. And she came to prominence. She was uh, black. 
and she came to prominence in France. She had gone through all sorts of prejudice in the Ameri in America, and she had moved to France where she was an instant sensation. But she agreed to work with the French resistance. And even some of the songs she chose were sending secret messages to the French resistance and helping them to know other key members that they could cooperate with. Also, which bridge they were supposed to blow up. She was amazing. One of the best underground covert spies during World War II. Now, in the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis likens believers to the French resistance. Though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we are now in occupied territory. Satan has come in, and he is occupying the land that belongs to God, not only because God created it, but because Jesus redeemed it. So what do we need to do in the meantime? Well, C.S. Lewis says we need to work together cooperatively, sometimes covertly, in order to resist the enemy, in order to sabotage the work of the enemy. And we need to be listening on shortwave radio, which he likens to prayer. And we need to be listening to the messages from our leaders in order to receive our divine instructions from God on what our part is in this resistance against the forces of evil and the awaiting of the government and kingdom of the God who owns everything, the righteous forces, to come and take back what is theirs. So you have all been recruited into the covert actions of the living God. And cooperation is imperative or we will not have success. And it is also imperative that we listen to what God is speaking individually to each of us as well as generally, globally, globally publicly to all of us. What is the Spirit of the Lord saying is our part in this resistance of evil and this sabotage of the forces of evil and the ushering in of the kingdom of our God and his Messiah, his son, Jesus. Part of our work is to recruit others to the cause of bringing the government of Jesus Christ to earth. And of course, the other is to receive his word and work with others. It is of note that most of the French resistance workers did not know each other. And the reason that they did not know each other, they gave false names to each other, is because if they were caught, they could not disclose the names of others. You know, if they were tortured, they, they'd be of no help to the Nazis. The volunteers were all expected to follow orders and work with whoever, whoever showed up who knew the secret passwords. And the criteria was given 
to them by others and the instruction. You know, division, prejudice, and denouncement has kept the church from effectively fighting the forces of evil. We just don't cooperate with each other. We grandstand. Uh, we, we are too quick to label, to generalize, to assume and presume. We have forgotten the true purpose of our mission. We have misjudged those who are actually on our side and the side of Jesus. We have refused to cooperate and work alongside others for the sake of seeing God's kingdom established on earth. That's what I love about the Jesus People Movement. It was so pure. I mean, Paulina knows this. We've talked about this. There was such a purity. You would stand in line for the Saturday night concerts next to Catholics and to Baptists and to Pentecostals. It was so beautiful because you know what? It was all for one and all for God. We worked and cooperated with each other. You know, Calvary is purposely non-denominational. My dad wrote it in every bylaw that we weren't allowed to be a denomination. I mean, I think that dad would come down from heaven and just, you know, rain havoc on us if we ever tried to become a denomination because his desire was that everyone who just wanted to learn the word of God could come to this place. You know, years ago, my dad had the opportunity. My dad was Chuck Smith. If you don't know, you should. But <laughs> my dad had the opportunity to meet with the head of Israel, which was Menachem Begin. He had this audience. Oh, it was so prestigious. We're like, Dad, you know, whoa, can I touch you? Ah. You know, it was just so exciting to go, and he sat down, and Menachem says, you know, thank you for your uh, support of Israel. What can I do for you? And my dad said, well, there's this plot of land that I've noticed next to the Jordan River, and uh, I'd like to pay for you to, I'll even pay for the purchase, our church will. I want you to do a baptismal site there. And I want any church that comes to Israel to be able to be baptized at that site. Because you know what we have to do right now? We have to change on the bus. It's so inconvenient and the people get hurt sliding down the mountain. It's slippery. But if we had a baptismal site and I will pay for it. And Menachem Begin says, let me look into it. And then my dad and Menachem Begin stayed in communication for the next two months. As they purchased the site. And as they begin to build, and then my dad wrote out the check. And he said, I have one stipulation. My name's not allowed to be on it. When you go to Israel, the only thing that's there is an olive tree that's dedicated to my dad. Right next to one dedicated to Benny Hinn. Isn't that so, God? Isn't that just so, God? But when you're there, you see churches from India. You see churches from Pakistan. You see Fred Price's church there with their 10 buses. You see every denomination. Not the Lutherans, because they sprinkle. 
and not the Anglicans because they also sprinkle. But you see, all of those that are into mercy, there, at that baptismal site. And I remember going there for my first time without dad after my father died. And I sobbed and sobbed. And there was one picture of my dad baptizing somebody. And I sobbed. I could not hold it together. I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And to hear all these different languages singing praise to God and being baptized. And I'm like, Lord, could you tell dad he did good? Could you just send a message to him? He did good. He did good that this is what he saw. This is what he wanted. And I was so, so blessed. I'm sorry. I'm glad you're crying with me, some of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are too quick. We're too quick. We've forgotten our true purpose and our true purpose. If you love one another, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love. We have misjudged. We can't go forward or hope for success if we remain so skewered. Our forces need to simply see the bigger picture. Some need to repent of division, prejudice, and denouncement. Some need to be willing to receive instructions from God and his agents. And all of us need to learn to cooperate and work together for the work of bringing God's kingdom, not man's kingdom, because every administration on earth, my dad said the minute someone becomes a politician, they become corrupt. We are here to bring God's kingdom to earth. There's one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. One Messiah. There's one hope for this world, and it's Jesus. There is one hope for the United States because you're not going to change the hearts of people by a different administration or by rules from the outside. It's got to be a transformed heart. And there's only one person who can transform a heart, and that's Jesus Christ. No one else can transform a heart. In 1 Kings 18, 1, 18, it's the unexpected story of Obadiah, as we just read. He's an official in an ungodly, idolatrous administration of Ahab. Wouldn't it be so easy to dismiss him? If you're godly, how can you work for that ungodly king? This is the most wicked administration that Israel has ever had. How can you work for his welfare? How can you cooperate with him? He is evil. Like evil, 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 bad, 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 bad. Wicked, awful, terrible. Obadiah is trustworthy to Ahab. Ahab can instruct, you know, two people go and search out for water in the land and for the livestock. And who are they? Ahab and his right-hand man, Obadiah, who is in charge of Ahab's welfare, to preserve Ahab alive, to make sure Jezebel eats, to make sure the palace has food. It is of note that the reason they're searching out sources of food and water is so that Ahab can keep the animals alive, not the people of Israel. 
He doesn't care about the people. He cares about the animals. Why? Because the animals facilitate his army. And at this point, um, it's recorded in the annals of Shalmaneser, who was a Syrian, that Ahab could muster an army of 2,000 chariots. Obadiah does not offer resistance to Ahab. He does not argue with the king about the inhumanity of such an effort. He complies with the king's order. Obadiah, think about this, works in an ungodly administration set upon promoting Baal worship. In fact, the prophets of Baal have so much prestige. They eat at Ahab's royal table in a country where the citizens are starving. 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah have no want of provision. They are fed the best of the land, and Obadiah has to make sure there's enough provision for everyone in the palace. I mean, you would think, like, Obadiah, if you were godly, you'd poison the stew. (laughs) But no, instead, he remains faithful. These prophets receive all the perks and advantages of royalty. They're held up as, look what you would get if you would turn to Baal. At the same time, this is an administration that is eradicating the worship of Yahweh, murdering the prophets and godly men in the country. How justifiable it would be for Elijah to desire the destruction not only of Ahab, but of all who cooperate in the administration of Ahab. But Ahab is not like I'm sorry, Obadiah is not like Ahab or Jezebel, not like them in the least. He has used his position in the administration of Ahab to find out the plots of Jezebel and Ahab, to find out where the prophets of God are, to warn them, to smuggle them to a cave, and to provide provision at his own cost for them to eat, for them to drink, for them to be safe. Imagine the danger, the sacrifice, the expense, the difficulty of such an endeavor. This is what Obadiah is doing in this administration. He is saving and preserving the godly. It was Cynthia in our group discussion today. She said, do you think Ahab knew he was a believer? Maybe, maybe not. Because maybe he would have been suspect if he was open about his belief. You know, maybe they'd be like, who's the snitch? How did the prophets of God know to hide? In this encounter with the prophet of Elijah, Obadiah discloses his righteous activity, what he has done. Uh, You know, nobody else is safe in knowing it. He's like, don't you have a network of prophets? Don't you know what I've done? Because Ahab doesn't know, but I expected you to know that I'm on your side. I'm on Yahweh's side. He shows his respect for Elijah by calling him Lord. He explains that he served Yahweh from his youth. He pleads for mercy. 
He reveals to Elijah the demeanor of Ahab toward the prophet, as well as Ahab's efforts to find him. Ahab has sought Elijah everywhere, even going so far as making the kings of nearby nations swear an oath that they are not hiding Elijah, that they have searched for Elijah and been unsuccessful in finding him. Because Ahab, as we know, blames Elijah for the drought and the famine. He is an unreasonable king who refuses to see the reality of Yahweh, his own culpability or his wife's culpability, and that he alone is the troubler of Israel. Furthermore, Obadiah believes in the anointing of the Spirit on Elijah's life, so much so that God will protect his prophet and he'll be killed in his stead. Obadiah does not want to go to Ahab with the news that Elijah is back in town and wants to meet. Such news could expose Obadiah and his covert activity for Yahweh. It could cost him his life. Elijah assures Obadiah of his intention, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. Obadiah then arranges the meeting. Do you realize without Obadiah's intervention, connection to Ahab and cooperation, what happens in the rest of chapter 18 could not happen? Ahab. It is Obadiah who sets this up. If he wasn't in this key place, if he didn't have access to Ahab, if you didn't have someone working covertly in this place, none of this could happen. God has many Obadiahs serving in unexpected places, sometimes because they serve in a corrupt administration or industry. We wrongly devalue or conclude that they cannot be sincere or working on behalf of Yahweh. True confession. I was so prejudiced against actors and actresses. Terribly prejudiced. Can anyone godly be in Hollywood or you know, do anything in life theater? I mean, I was, I was very self-righteous, you know? And like, if others were watching television, I'd just be like, I'll go in my room and read my Bible and pray for you. I really was. I was like that terrible, even, you know, just so self-righteous. And when we were in England, somehow we got on this website of, um, it's about Christian actors and models, those in the industry, the best place to hear the Bible and best church to go to. And they put our church in Westminster, London. You know, isn't it so good that that website did not know that the pastor's wife was such a little self-righteous snob. Because <laughs> the next thing you knew, we got all these tall, absolutely beautiful people in our church. We got producers, and we got actors, and we got actresses, and all these people coming in just loving the Word of God. And among those, there was Robert, and there was Kim. And they were one of the most vibrant couples I've ever met. They would, like, bounce into church. They were engaged. And they were living together, and they were engaged. And they're like, don't worry, we know, separate rooms, but it's so expensive, and we're getting married in a month. And you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> and you're also an actor. And he, he gave us 
free tickets, and he was there every Sunday. And he was like the loudest amen or amen, amen. He was an American in London. And he was Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. And he gave us free tickets. And so we went and saw him, and he was like amazing, amazing. And we went with this couple that was newly saved, and we didn't want to stumble them by my self-righteousness, so we just went. And there he is dancing and doing these cups, and he just like, he steals the show. He was so amazing. And his girlfriend, Kim, was so godly and so amazing. I mean, they were like the, they were, I just fell in love with them. I couldn't help it. I tried to resist, and I couldn't. It's like, no. I loved them. They were like so cooperative. If we had a home Bible study, there they were. And they brought such joy every place they went. And I would look and they'd be praying for somebody. And then not only that, he started bringing all the cast to our church with him. All the cast of Beauty and the Beast, they're all coming to our church. And it's because of Robert's witness. And he takes us backstage to meet everybody, the producer and everyone who's putting on um, Beauty and the Beast. And they start telling us about Robert's kindness, about Robert's integrity, about Robert's honesty, about how Robert is the easiest actor of all of them to work with, and how he's got some of the hardest parts, the, the jugs that they would, you know, dance with and everything. They weighed 15 pounds each, and there he is doing this. He goes, you should see my abs, you know? I mean, abs. I'm so good at muscles. I just remember abs are here. These are something else. Yeah, okay, well, you know, okay? But some of us, we've been praying why others are in the gym. No, I'm just kidding. No, I thank you for biceps. I couldn't even think of it right now. But everyone was telling us over and over again, and they didn't know Robert was a Christian until they would go through something and say, well, you know, actually, I pray. Can I pray for you? And everyone shared about how Robert prayed for them. And the people that came to our church came because of the witness of Robert, who was in this administration. And some of the people he had to work alongside with, oh, my goodness, they were so um, overtly atheistic. But they couldn't, like me, resist Robert. And I remember when somebody else replaced Gaston, and it was time for Robert and Kim to leave, and they were going back, and they were getting married, and everything was beautiful, and um, I had to say goodbye to them. And I was sobbing, and they're sobbing, and we're hugging. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I was prejudiced against you. And he's like, what? I was like, no, no, no. You changed my heart. You changed my life, and now you're leaving me. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I was like, you made me fall in love with you and you can. And she was starting cats. And such a witness, same thing. I never went and saw her, you know. But everyone that came from the cats that was talking about what a witness Kim was. And the Lord said to me, I hate your prejudices. I've put up with it for a long time, but I've never liked it. I've never approved. I've never been party to it. I want you to love. I want you to love. Dear friends, there are many Obadiahs in our midst, many Roberts, 
many kins. They work undercover, and we might never know their identity. But our job is not to condemn the lost, for the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to seek and to save the lost. In Luke chapter 9, John and James react strongly when the Samaritans don't want Jesus in their village. And they go to Jesus and they say, should we call down fire from heaven? And they're thinking about Elijah. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man came not to destroy the world, but to save the world. We need to remember the spirit that we are of. We're of the saving spirit. We're of the one who came to seek and save the lost. We are ambassadors of Jesus. Do we look like Jesus? Do we talk like Jesus? Do we love like Jesus? Are we patient like Jesus? If not, you know what we need? More Jesus. More Jesus. We don't need to be like, okay, I need to be more patient. Rule number five. No, get rid of the law. You just simply need more Jesus. Isn't that simple? I just need more Jesus. You know, we used to sing this song, and it says, um, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus than I ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich and full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. Stand back, Robert and Kim. But the idea is, give him more of you. That's how you become more, of like, more like Jesus. You give him more of you. When you find a place in your heart or life that's not under the authority of Jesus Christ, you take the flag out, whether it's the flag of Cheryl or the flag, of, which you don't have, but I do. You take that flag out and you put the flag of Jesus. You give him authority over that place. The world needs to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus. They don't need to see another political blah. They don't need to see another self-righteous snob. They don't need Cheryl. They need Jesus. And how are they going to see Jesus unless I'm acting and giving my life to Jesus? And I'm full of Jesus. How are they going to know the love of Jesus? We are ambassadors of Jesus. We are working against one enemy. We have one enemy and only one enemy, and his name is devil. He's our only enemy. And we need to seek to save those who are under the sway of the devil by showing them how great, how exciting, how grace-filled, how loving is the kingdom of God. You know what we need to do? Have the best time. We just need to have the best time serving Jesus. We need to just have joy and exuberation serving Jesus and not go over time like someone else has. We must work with others, the Obadiahs, to be effective. Our purpose is to save lives, not destroy men's lives. The people in this world are not our enemies. They are a mission field. And one of the ways to draw them in is by enjoying Jesus and loving one another so much that they want in and we say, well, there is a way in. And it's through the one that's made us loving and made us kind. 
It's Jesus. This is our mission field. We've been recruited for this work. Are you ready to join the godly resistance? Father, thank you that you have given each one of us the opportunity. Lord, we want to pray against those prejudices. I know in a room like this, we all have prejudices. We all have false hopes from this world. Lord, we we get angry because there are so many atrocities that are done in this world, so many bad things, and we feel so helpless against the occupiers. We pray that you will show us how to fight the good fight, that you would fill us so full of love that it would just take all the prejudice out. There'd be no room. Lord, that we just be so filled with Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus, that anything that's wrong, anything that's out of order, would just be pushed aside and come under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.